Amen. Well, last time we were together, we looked at how the Apostle Paul wanted to return to the city of Thessalonica. And there are a number of reasons why we suggested they were, he and, and Silas uh, were prohibited from going back there. And, um, but, but one in particular, many scholars hold to, and that is the idea that when Paul left Thessalonica, a bond had to be issued for him and Silas. And uh, in some cities in the ancient world, a bond worked a little bit different than they do today. That today when we have a bond, it's, it's kind of proof that we'll show up for court. But there were certain times, certain places in the ancient world when a bond was given and a person left town, it was, it was proof that they would not return. And, and there's a strong possibility that that could be the reason why Paul wasn't able to return to the city of Thessalonica. And, um, and if he did return to the city, that might cost Jason, who posted bond, quite a bit of money, maybe more than the church could repay. And so therefore, Paul was prevented from coming back. We're not exactly sure the reason, but we know that he describes this as, as Satan's work to impede his ability to get back to the city. But he's in, a, he's in a difficult place because he and Silas and probably Timothy, who was with them, went from Thessalonica to Berea. And then when they were in Berea, the same deal happened. They were, they were forced out of the city of Berea. And then Paul uh, at first went alone to Athens. And so we pick up with the story uh, when Paul was in that city after, later on, Timothy and Silas join him there. And so Paul is basically telling us the story, sharing with us the story of how he sent Timothy and why he, went, he sent Timothy back to the city. But the, but the main reason was, was because the church there, the church in Thessalonica was so critical, so key. And a great lesson that we can learn from this text as we read it together is that the church is God's chosen instrument to transform the world. The church that you're part of, that all believers are part of, is God's chosen instrument to transform the world. Now, um, when Paul and Silas were forced to leave the city of Thessalonica, it, it, it dealt a huge blow to the church there. They had three giant problems. Number one, it was a young church. They were just there for a short time. They preached the gospel. People made professions of faith. Uh, but, but they had to leave before they had an opportunity to nurture them in their faith, to disciple them in their faith. So that was one problem. Another problem was they had a leadership vacuum. Here, Paul and Silas, they were the ones who went to the city, who established the church, and now all of a sudden, in no time, they're gone. How are they going to function without, without their leadership? And then number three, they didn't have mature teaching. They didn't have mature teaching. Again, Paul and Silas would have been their mature teachers. They were forced out of the city. And as a result of that, they didn't have that. So they, they, had, they, had, they had some serious problems that they were dealing with in the city. And this was terrifying to Paul. He says in verse 1, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy. This phrase here, for we could bear it no longer, is a very interesting phrase. And actually, he repeats it. Later in verse 5. But um, uh, maybe a, a way to understand that is to, to remember back to 2017. 
there was the Oroville Dam issue. Does anybody remember that in 2017 in California? There was, an, there was a dam in California, the second largest reservoir in California. It was about to burst. It was about to burst. They had heavy rains, lots of water. And um, here's, a, here's a picture of the Oroville Dam. For those of you who are engineers, you'll, you might like this. Um, but uh, you have, you have uh, the main spillway for the dam here with the arrow on the, on the right side. And they were releasing water because it was getting so high and it began to damage the spillway. So they decided to open up an emergency spillway on the other side, on the left-hand side. And you can see that there. But when they opened up that emergency spillway to let water out of the reservoir, it also became damaged. And be- below in the, in the dam, uh, on those spillways, they became compromised. And so there was a great deal of fear that that dam was going to give way and 180,000 people were evacuated. Now, I was watching closely because at the time, my niece lived downstream from that. And so we were obviously praying about that situation. But 180,000 people had to be evacuated because if that dam gave way, it would send a 30-foot wall of water that would destroy anything in its path. And so... Uh, It would send it down into the Feather River, and it would be tremendous danger. It was about to burst. And by the way, somebody asked me at the end of the last service, what happened to the dam? The dam dam held. (laughs) Just for those of you who aren't familiar with the story, the dam dam held. But but this this phrase here, when we could bear it no longer, is is actually a phrase that that kind of carries with it this same... Um, the same feeling. It's um, according to some scholars, this word, uh, this phrase refers to, to to trying to keep water in something or trying to keep water out of something. And so Paul, he says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, what he was saying was he had left the city, he had gone from Thessalonica, as you know, to Berea, now on to Athens, but he hadn't gotten any word from the city and how that they were doing. And he felt, like a, he felt like a dam that was ready to burst. He was, he was so uh, upset about what could be happening in that church. Again, a church that was, that was brand new. A church that didn't have uh, spiritual leadership. And, and a church that didn't have mature teaching. He was, he was terrified about what was going on in that city. And so he tells us that, that uh, he sent Timothy. Now one of the things that's emphasized here is the cost, the cost of sending Timothy to the city of Thessalonica. He emphasizes the fact that we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. That we'd be willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And what, 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 is the, what is the cost of that? What is the cost of that? Well, surely there was a mental cost. There was a mental cost of being left behind alone in Athens. Remember, Paul, I mean, if there's anybody who would have maybe post-traumatic stress syndrome for ministry, it would have been the Apostle Paul. He had been in Philippi, and they beat him and Silas, and they arrested them. It was illegal. He was eventually released, but, but that's how he left the city. And then he goes to Thessalonica. He preaches the gospel. There are riots that occur. He, has to, he, he barely escapes the city. Then, then he ends up in Berea. And then you have the same thing happen all over again. Now he's in Athens. And on top of that, when he was in Athens, 
As he looked over the city, he arrived there first before the, before the others arrived there with him. It, it tells us in Acts 17, 16, that his spirit was provoked with, with all of the idols that he saw in the city. It was, it, was, it was an oppressive place for him, and he looked forward to his friends joining him in the city. There was this great, there was this, 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 uh, this great mental cost to the Apostle Paul, just the whole idea of, of him now in that city serving alone. And Paul was used to working in teams. And this is so important. God did not make us as a body to work by ourselves. God made us to use each of our gifts for the furtherance of the gospel. And Paul was used to that. He worked in teams. He worked with other people. He didn't work alone. But now he would be in this situation where he would be forced to work by himself. You know, God... God made us, God made us to, to um, serve with others. Remember when God in the creation, what, uh, when he, he made each day, what did it say? And it was good. Everything that God did was good. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we get to the first thing that wasn't good. Remember what that was? It says in Genesis 2.18, it was not good that the man should be alone. And so what God did was he made a helpmeet for him, Eve. It wasn't good for him to be alone. God, God made us to work together for his glory, but now Paul would be all alone in the city, and he would have to go and deal with the issues in that city by himself. Number two, there's a relational cost. Even though Paul had gone through all of these trials, at least he had someone to go through his trials with. He had someone to go through his trials with. They weren't just teammates. They were, they were family. They were brothers. And now Paul was going to send Timothy to Thessalonica. He was going to send uh, Silas to Macedonia. And this would mean that Paul would be all alone. I, I don't know if you've ever felt what that's like, being, being alone as a Christian. When we, uh, during the first service, I, I couldn't help but but as we were singing A Mighty Fortress, my mind, you know, you know it's amazing how music does that, right? Do you ever hear a song and it takes you back to when, I don't know, you were a kid? And you, you're almost like there in the place again. Well, when we were singing A Mighty Fortress, my mind, I don't know why I did this, it went back to when I was in high school. And I was in a huge high school. And my freshman class, there were something like 1,700 kids. It's one of the largest high schools in the nation, in, in Chicago. And I remember being in that school and feeling all alone very often as a Christian in the school. But I had a friend on the football team who was a Christian. His name was Lowell. And I remember sometimes when we, were, when we would be in the locker room, and there would just be a few of us in the locker room, uh, all of a sudden, and Lowell was the first, first one to do it, but, but from then on, every time I'd see Lowell in the locker room, we would burst out singing A Mighty Fortress. And that's like one of those great songs that you can just burst out baritone, right? And I don't really have a baritone voice, but you just, oh, my, you know, and, 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 and it kind of reverberates. You know, you're in a locker room, and the sound is bouncing around, and then you, you have two guys that are singing with all their might, a mighty fortress is our God. That was, that was a special time. And, and the reason why that was so special was because I felt all alone in that school. But then, but then when, when I was there and with Lowell, and we would sing a mighty fortress, all of a sudden, you just weren't alone anymore. And then... And then to think we can, we can gather together as God's people in this place and we can sing that hymn together. Just a beauty. 
in togetherness, in relationships. And God made us for relationships. He made us to love each other. But Paul now was going to be all alone in this particular situation. Not only that, there was going to, it was going to come at a great spiritual cost to the Apostle Paul. Athens was a unique intellectual challenge. I mean, this was the place of Plato. This was the, who had lived there hundreds of years before. This is the place of Aristotle, who had lived there long before. Uh, this was the place where all the philosophers would get together and they would discuss. And now Paul is going to be taking them on. And you know as well as I do, when you have a great challenge like that, it is good to have people around you that you can bounce ideas around, off of and you can, you can talk to and you can, they, they can help strengthen you and encourage you in that. And Paul knew that he was going to have to deal with many of these challenges of preaching the gospel in a place like that, in a unique place like that, but he was going to be all alone. And so God made us. He made us to live in a relationship. That's why he gave us the church. He, he made us so that we serve together. Isn't that a great thing? You think about it on a Sunday morning. Look at, look at all the different people who, who are just active on a Sunday morning. You think about all the greeters when you walk in the door. These are people who just volunteer for that. They just want to serve the Lord. But where would we be without them helping to, to seat us and making sure everything's organized? Or you think about uh, when the service starts, everybody has their part. We think about Evan, and he does such an amazing job with announcements. And we think about the worship team. Somebody uh, a little bit earlier this morning just went on and on and on about what an amazing worship team that we have in our congregation. Or you think about uh, Pastor Doug when he, when he shares the children's message and shows that, that our children are important to us too and that we want them to grow up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Everybody has their place. Everybody has their purpose. Everybody has their ministry. And, and it's, a, it's such a beautiful thing to serve God together. Or yesterday when we did the cleanup next door, I mean, you would not believe the amount of junk <laughs> that, that we were able to scoop up. And, and how is that possible? Well, because people had their own particular gifts and they had their own knowledge of doing particular things and in no time it just, it just happened. And you know it was a lot of fun to do that together. It, it was, it's a joyful thing. And working in teams and working together is a wonderful thing. But sometimes in the Christian life we have to go it alone. Sometimes in the Christian life we have to go it alone. That's always been the, the way of the Christian. You think about, um, think about Abraham. God called him to go from, from uh, Mesopotamia to the promised land, to the land of Canaan. And he had to leave everything behind. He had to leave his nation. He had to leave his people. He had to leave his clan. He had to leave his family. And he had to go there to the place that God appointed him to go. Or you think about when, when uh, finally God gave him a son. We have the story in, in Genesis 22. He sends, uh, he tells Abraham that I want you to sacrifice my son on Mount, uh, your son on Mount M Moriah. And, um, and can you imagine how lonely Abraham felt as he made his way to that place? Isaac himself not even knowing what was going to happen. Now, we know the story. God did not ask him to do that. But that was, a, that, was a, that was a type of what was to come when one day God, though he would not ask Abraham to sacrifice his son, one day God would sacrifice his son for us. Or we think about... Um, Maybe others, maybe others in, the, in the Bible, like David, when he was on the run from Saul, he was this faithful general, faithful son-in-law, but Saul hated him with, a, with an insane hatred. And so he constantly chased him around and, and tried to kill him. 
And in those days, David sought refuge in the Lord. And you see all these psalms that were written by David from that period when God sustained him and strengthened him through those times. Or we think about Jesus. Think about Jesus who went to the cross, who had one of his disciples who betrayed him. Another one of his disciples denied him. The disciples were scattered. They ran away. And there Jesus was on the cross, and he was suffering. And then on top of that, God the Father, who he had known fellowship with for all eternity, turned his face away from Jesus when he was on the cross. There was no lonelier, more solitary figure than Jesus was when he was on the cross. And sometimes we have to go it alone. Though God has made us to live in relationship, though God has made us to work together, there are some times where we have to go it alone. And I'm sure that some of you know exactly what that's like. It could be when you go back home to your family, maybe you feel all alone. Maybe you, you have this relationship with Christ that's transformed your heart and you wish that they could experience what you've experienced and they just can't understand you. Or maybe when you go to work every day and you're in an environment where uh, people don't understand why you make the decisions you make and think the way that you think and why the things that are important to you are important to you. And you feel like at the deepest level you don't have a connection with those people that you spend probably more time with than just about anybody else. Or you think about when you're at school and, and maybe, uh, maybe you're in high school or in college and you feel like your faith is being mocked by a professor or mocked by other students and you feel very small and you feel alone. Sometimes, sometimes the Christian life requires that we go it alone and we see in the Apostle Paul this serious commitment he was willing to go it alone because the, the, the church in Thessalonica was so important. He was willing to, to send these people, and particularly Timothy, send this person that was so important to him, to them, to deprive himself of Timothy and his life for their benefit, for their sake. He was willing to go alone. We see uh, another element here, not just serious commitment, but we see another element of faithful leadership. These things are required if a church are gonna, is going to be a healthy church. Serious commitment is, is, is necessary. Faithful leadership is necessary. We read in verses 2 through 4, And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. Now, Timothy's going back to Thessalonica wasn't just something that was scary for Paul. It was also something that was dangerous for Timothy. You have to remember that, that uh, Paul was, was whooshed out of the city, that there was a riot that took place just based on him preaching the gospel. And now when his associates, his young associates, are going back there, on top of this... Timothy isn't one of those guys that just had the ability to fill up a room. When I think about somebody who had the ability to fill up a room, I think about the pastor that I had who was probably most influential on me was a man named uh, Pastor Ray Pritchard, Dr. Ray Pritchard. And Dr. Ray Pritchard was, was somebody who filled up a room. And some of you who are associated with Word of Life, you know all about Ray Pritchard. But he was the kind of person who filled up a room. He was six foot three, six foot four, imposing. Talk about a baritone voice. He had a baritone voice, a, a, an amazing, he has an amazing sense of humor. Uh, he is somebody who's deeply knowledgeable of the scriptures. And when Ray Pritchard goes into a room, it's like E.F. Hutton, right? 
when, when E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens. When Ray Pritchard walks in a room, everybody's eyes go to Ray Pritchard. Just a magnetic personality. But that wasn't Timothy. Most of us aren't Ray Pritchards. Probably most of us are, are Timothys. In fact, um, Timothy was somebody who was young. He was inexperienced. He was somebody who was uh, timid. We know this from other sections of Scripture. And uh, Paul, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, he says, Let no one, and it gives you a window into how people reacted to him. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. How many of you feel more like a Timothy than a Ray Pritchard? The beautiful thing is is that if that's the way you feel, God will use you. And he'll use you in extraordinary ways if you you just follow him and do what he calls you to do. For Timothy, this was likely his first rodeo. This would have been his first assignment. Paul is sending in a green and inexperienced young man to a church that is green and inexperienced. I mean, you talk about a uh, potion for disaster. Uh, this, this, this is what you would imagine, just from a worldly perspective, this is, this is what you would, you would think that you would find. But the reality is, is that God's way of working is so much deeper than that. You know, God, God doesn't need us to accomplish his purpose. What the um, Thessalonians needed wasn't necessarily Timothy. What they needed was the Lord. I, I love how... I love how um, Paul describes Timothy in verse 2. He calls him our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Now think about that for a second. Can you imagine, can you imagine Timothy being as timid as he was, going on a dangerous mission? He would have been going there likely on his own, into that city, in a difficult place, and then to have somebody remind you, somebody in your life remind you, hey, Timothy... You might feel this big, but I want you to know, I want you to know that you are God's coworker. How would that make you feel? I mean, isn't that an extraordinary statement? Timothy is called God's coworker. I can't think of anything more attractive, more wonderful, any designation, any title that anyone could ever give any one of us that's better than God's coworker. And do you know that Timothy wasn't made out of different stuff than, than you and I were? I am, right? He, he has the same kind of flesh and bones. He has the same kinds of fears and struggles. He has, he has the, 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 surely the same feeling of being unworthy that we all do, but, but he was God's co-worker for the sake, for the cause of the gospel. And, and that's, a, that's a wonderful freeing thing. You know, when we serve Christ, we can leave the results up to him. He's the one who brings the results. We just, we just serve and we serve and we work. And God is the one who takes our service and our labor and he produces from it abundant fruit. Get this picture, this picture of who he, of who he was and, and what he did and the difference that he made in their lives. He basically had three jobs. He basically had three jobs. Number one, he was an apologist. He was an apologist. He was to establish and exhort you in the faith. And um, thought that this might be a good opportunity for a commercial. Good opportunity for a commercial. 
commercial break? No, it's not really commercial break because it, go, it goes along with this. But, but one, one neat opportunity that we have, we have just solidified this, that in October, beginning of October, I believe it's around October 1st and 2nd, Biola University is going to be having their apologetics conference here. And Biola University has some of the best apologists teaching there in the world, and they are sending three of them to our church. I think that's pretty exciting. And one of the, one of the uh, amazing things, one of the cool things about apologists and, uh, is, is that, uh, number one, apologists, they, they kind of have, a, they have a, dual, a dual purpose. The first purpose is to defend the faith. So very often when you have, you have, uh, you, you have people who are critics of the faith, well, the apologists are the ones who answer the critics. And, and isn't that a blessing? And, and uh, they share the gospel. And, and hopefully through the sharing of gospel, people come to know Christ and they show how our faith is grounded on fact. Some people say you live in the world of faith and I live in the world of fact, but the reality is that all of us live in the world of faith and fact at the same time because, because faith is simply trusting someone to do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. And I don't care if you're an atheist or a Christian or some other thing, everybody has to trust people to do things for themselves that they cannot do for themselves. We all live in the world of, of faith and we all live in the world of fact. And these apologists are highly trained people who go and that, that they, they have PhDs in philosophy and things like this. And so they, they share the gospel. They share the facts of the gospel. They share, they, they share uh, uh, why our faith is a reasonable faith. That is one part of their function. It's evangelistic. But there's another part of their function that's really important. And that, and that, is, that is strengthening believers. You know, we live in a world often that feels very hostile to our faith. That there are people very often who, who criticize us and may mock us for our faith. And it's great to know that, that no matter what question people raise, there is always an answer for the question. And that's what apologists do. And that's something I remind myself of all the time. Even when somebody asks me a question that maybe I can't answer in the moment, I know that there's somebody out there who has answered that question. Because there's nothing new under the sun. And so one of the purposes of Timothy, when he went back, was to strengthen and encourage them. It was, to, it was to reaffirm that what they believed was true. You have to remember, again, that they were under persecution. Number two, he was a counselor to them. He was a counselor to them. He was to prepare them for the realities of the Christian life. We read in verses 3 and 4, that no one be moved by these afflictions. Notice the word afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this, for when we were with you, we kept telling you, and by the way, this is in the imperfect tense, which means he told them over and over and over again in the, pa in the past. When, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. One of the things that, that Paul probably knew about these Thessalonian believers was that, was that they thought that when they entered into a personal relationship with Christ that all of their problems would go away. A lot of people think that. And one of the reasons why people think that is because there's churches out there constantly telling people things like that. But it's false. Our problems don't go away when we become a Christian. Now, we've, we've said it many times. Becoming a Christian doesn't make life easier, but, but it's certainly better, isn't it? It doesn't make it easier. And so these people had the idea that once they came to faith in Christ, once they embraced the true God, 
then they would be ushered in a new kind of reality that where they wouldn't have issues or problems or hardships anymore. And this is the fundamental issue of something called the prosperity gospel that's out there. The prosperity gospel says if you only have enough faith, if you're only um, faithful enough, God is going to bless you with good health and lots of money. Well, sometimes, sometimes uh, God takes those things away, not because, not because he's angry at us, but because he's pleased with us. Remember the story of Job? We spent months looking at Job. That's exactly what happened to him. He lost everything because God was pleased with him. Now, God restored him, of course. But, but Paul wanted to make sure that they didn't have a, a misunderstanding of the Christian life. You know when we're, we're kind of falling in the trap of the prosperity gospel thinking, even, even if we've rejected the prosperity gospel, one of the ways we've known, we know that we've fallen into the thinking, and it's a transactional thinking, Meaning that I do certain things for God, now he is bound to do certain things for me because I did certain things. How do we know that we've fallen into it, even if we've rejected the prosperity gospel? Well, because when things go wrong in my life, I say, God, this isn't fair. Look at all I've done for you. Look how I've served you. Look how faithful I've been. Look, look at how amazing I'm at. I mean, if I didn't serve you, the whole, the whole church would fall apart, right? But, but look, I've been so faithful to you. How come you can't give me this? Might be a, might be a relationship. It might be a... It might be uh, something financial. Who knows? It's unlimited with the number of people. We, we experience a great disappointment. We get angry with God, and then we start to shake our fist, and we say, God, why? Why haven't you given me more? Why didn't you give me this? Look how, look how faithful I've been. Well, then we know at that moment that even if we've rejected the, the prosperity gospel, we have entered into prosperity gospel thinking. We have entered into prosperity gospel thinking, transactional thinking. The third thing he was to be was an analyst. He was to be an analyst. Read this in verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. You see, Paul taught them to assess the faith of the Thessalonians. He taught them to assess their strengths and weaknesses and to, and to encourage them where they're strong and to, and to, and to remediate where they're weak. And so this, this is part of being a faithful leader, and this is what Timothy was to do. You see, what... What Timothy needed was not an amazing personality. What Timothy needed to do is just rest and rely on Christ who would accomplish his work through him. He was God's co-worker. All the pressure didn't sit on his shoulders as he served Christ. He didn't have to do anything amazing. He just had to be faithful. That's what God is calling each one of us to be. And the third thing is the church needed divine intervention. The, The church, first of all, needed a serious commitment. Secondly, it needed faithful leadership, and third, it needed divine intervention. It needed divine intervention. We read in verse 5. I've already read the beginning of verse 5, but we'll read it again. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now, um, why did, why did uh, Paul, Paul send Timothy to do this? This is very interesting. And, and, and for many of us, this is a, a challenging theological statement that Paul is making. We read, because he was fearful that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Well, as a congregation, uh, one of our affirmations is that we cannot lose our salvation. 
when we have entered into a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, that relationship cannot be taken away. God will never disown his own people. So then we get to a passage like this and we see Paul's greatest fear. And that was that somehow the tempter had tempted you in our labor would be in vain. How do we explain that? Well, the context tells us everything we need to know to explain that point. Remember, Paul went to Thessalonica, and he was only there a short time. And while he was there, he was preaching the gospel. And you know, Jesus illustrates this this way. He tells the story of a uh, a sower and seed, and the sower goes out and he sows seed, and he's scattering the seed, and sometimes a seed falls along a path, and uh, a bird, which is symbolic of Satan, picks up the seed and, and just takes it away. That, that had no impact on that person. The gospel goes out, the person hears it, no interest whatsoever. And then um, the sower, as he's sowing, he sows other seed um, on rocky ground. And, um, and, and in, in Palestine, they, they had rocks that were just below the surface of the ground very often. And sometimes seed would be scattered in those areas. And it appeared that the, that the seed took root, it was watered, it would go down. But then as time went on, as it, as it, hit, the, as it hit the stone below, it would push the seed or push the plant up out of the ground. The roots would be exposed. The sun would shine down on it and it would, it would wither away. And, and Jesus compares that to somebody who had a very shallow faith, somebody who heard the message who uh, rejoiced in what they heard, but, but a short time later, because of all of the things of this life, they, they, uh, they, they simply wandered away. That wasn't, that wasn't the good seed that fell on the good soil. This was not, that, that was not a true conversion, in other words. And then there's other seed that falls among the weeds. And um, that seed also takes root. It, it's watered. It goes into the ground. It begins to sprout. But then all of a sudden, weeds grow up around it at the same time. When the sower was sowing the, the seed, there was no weeds there, visible to the eye. But, but as the other crops grow, the weeds grow with it, and they choke, out, they choke out the plant, and so it bears no fruit. And so it gives the appearance of there being a conversion, but there's no real conversion that happens in the person's life. They walk away from the faith when the troubles of this life arise. And then Jesus describes a seed that fell on the good soil. And the seed that fell on the good soil took root, went into the ground, and it bore fruit. And those who hear the gospel, those who embrace the gospel, who believe the gospel, fruit is inevitable. So what's Paul's trouble? Paul was just in the city a short time. He had preached the gospel. People made professions of faith. And then, and then uh, he was whisked away. And he didn't hear anything about them. He couldn't nurture them in their faith. He couldn't watch them as they grow. He knew that they were under persecution. And he was terrified. He was terrified that all he had done, all of the labor that he had done there would be in vain. He was terrified that the, that the persecution itself would be like, would show the, the fruit to be that which fell on the rocky ground or that which fell in the, uh, among, the, among, the, um, among the weeds and thorns and briars and all of that. And he was fearful that, that there would be no church left as a result of the persecution that they went through. And so in that sense, he was fearful that somehow the tempter had tempted you in our labor 
would be in vain. Our labor would be in vain. Well, Satan has a lot of different ways to tempt us, doesn't he? And I just want to mention a few. Satan begins by getting us to doubt God's word. That's why we need Timothys, people who defend the faith and who establish us in our faith and those who give us reasonable answers for the things that we believe because Satan begins by causing us to doubt God's word. And so um, we have, um, remember, remember when Eve was in the garden, she was being tempted. Remember what the devil said to her? Did God really say? Did you ever hear that whispering voice in your ear? There's something you want really badly, and you say to yourself, you hear that voice, did God really say that I shouldn't have that? Did God really say that I shouldn't do that? That's how Satan operates, or he, he gets us to, to rationalize our sin. How could something that is so good be so bad? I, I need to do this for financial reasons, or... Um, uh, uh, the government steals from me anyway, so it's okay if I, I keep a little extra for myself. Or um, I think in my case, I, I tend to rationalize too. Um, Ron Knapp has always um, given me a hard time about eating junk food, and, and probably more of you should give me a hard time too, but I always tell them it's for the children. That, that's why, that's why I, I eat that. But you know, we have, we have, um, we have ways of rationalizing our behavior. We all know it. We all have struggled with it. But that's why knowing God's word and believing God's word and obeying God's word is so important. And then there's, then there's coveting. We begin to covet things that, that, um, that don't belong to us. It's an inordinate desire for something that is not ours. That's coveting. Uh, we, we begin to fantasize about a life that's different from the life that God gave us. And so it, it leads to all kinds of sins of the mind. And sins of the mind always inevitably give way to sins, to deeds that are full of sin. Uh, uh, fantasy always wants to be actualized. Fantasy always wants to be realized. And a lot of us say, you know, it's okay to fantasize about this or that because I'm, I'm really not doing anything wrong. But in reality, uh, that, is, that is a precursor to acting out on our sin. It begins in the mind and it works its way out in our life. Um, one, one, uh, just one way to look at this, um, there's one philosopher who, who um, was an atheist for a long time in his life. And he said when he was an atheist, he became a Christian. But he said one of the things that was hard for him to, to figure out is why is, Christi why is the heart so, such an important part of Christianity? I mean, if, if somebody, if somebody uh, does something wrong, then, then that should be wrong. But if somebody just thinks about doing something wrong, that shouldn't be wrong. And he, and he didn't, he, he said, I, I just couldn't get it. He said, I didn't get it until I became a Christian. He said, then I, then I realized, then I realized. He said, um, he said imagine a, a, an oddball in your town. Imagine an oddball in your town who has murderous thoughts. He said, I, I don't know why Christianity would say that a, a, a person, uh, an oddball person in, in a particular town who has murderous thoughts would be, be as bad as an actual murderer, somebody like Stalin. And Stalin, as you know, killed millions and millions of his own people. Why would, why would Christianity say that? Jesus said, you know, even if you look with, uh, with lust on a woman, you've committed adultery with her in, her heart, in your heart. And, uh, you know, if we're hateful toward our, toward our, our brother or uh, sister in Christ, we, we, we have now committed the sin of murder. How, how can that be? 
He said, so you have, a, you, have an, you have an oddball person in your town who's filled with hateful and murderous thoughts. How can that person uh, be on the same level as a Stalin? And then it dawned on him, and this was after he became a believer, was that the difference between that oddball in town and Stalin is simply this. Stalin had the opportunity to carry out his desires while the oddball in town didn't have the ability to carry out his. You see, the difference isn't in kind, it's one of opportunity. One had the opportunity to do it and the other one didn't. And when we begin to cultivate covetous or... or um, uh, uh, we begin to fantasize in ways that we know are displeasing to the Lord, and we say, well, it's okay because I, I won't carry it out. The reality is, is that fantasy always wants to be actualized. Fantasy always wants to be realized. And if we cultivate those things in our heart one day, if the opportunity presents itself, we will give in to that sin. And so therefore, on that level, there is no difference between the person who covets or fantasizes and the person who carries out whatever that act is because the one had the opportunity and the other didn't have the opportunity. And therefore, both are wrong. And God calls us to, to look to him, to obey his word, to follow him. Well, that's how Satan, those are some ways that Satan goes after us. He he gets us to doubt God's word. He gets us to rationalize our sin. He gets us to fantasize or covet things that God hasn't given to us. Well, how did this, how did this uh, young church with a leadership vacuum and um, no mature teaching survive all that time when Paul was gone and sent off to another city? How did it survive? They had Christ. And if they had Christ, they would never die. They had Christ. Paul didn't know what happened to them. He didn't know what their suffering would do. He didn't know what it would produce. But the reason why that church survived against all odds is really because it wasn't against all odds anyway. They had Christ. The seed had fallen on the good soil. And they were, they were going to hold firm no matter what happened, no matter what came their way. And this is the beauty, this is the beauty of God's saving power. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And there's nothing that we can do to get God to disown us. It's, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. Salvation is a miracle. So, just want to make um, four points, or uh, uh, I'm sorry, three points of application. Very quickly. Number one, the body of Christ is not just a group of friends, we are family. You can, you can see this dripping through this text. That there is this deep love and affection that Paul has for his lieutenants, Silas and Timothy. But also this deep love and affection that drives him for the church in Thessalonica. And, and that's, that's the truth of us. God calls us to be, to be a family. To love each other in that way. The reality is, is that, that there are some times where our spiritual family is closer to us than our physically, physical family is. And, and there's nothing better in all the world than to have our, 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 our physical and our spiritual family as one. We, we meet with each other on the deepest possible level when we have this relationship with each other. Number two, 
Number two, Satan attacks regular people just like us. Satan attacks regular people just like us. You know, last time we noticed Satan was after Paul, right? But the reason why Satan was after Paul was because he didn't want them to get to the Thessalonian believers. But we notice here in this text that Satan was after them too, and he's after us too. And we have to be aware that we are fighting a spiritual battle. This is part of... This is the part of the Christian life that we are living in. And just, I've, you've heard me say this before. I'll just say it one, one more time, just very quickly. But, but, you know, in the Bible, in the Bible, um, the Lord Jesus is depicted like a shepherd, right? And we are depicted by, like sheep, aren't we? And Satan is depicted as a lot of things. And, and there are all kinds of mixed metaphors in the Bible, but... Um, Satan is depicted as a roaring lion. What chance do, what chance do sheep have against roaring lions? <laughs> we, live in a, we live in a rural enough community to know that they don't stand a chance at all, right? But if, if those sheep have a good shepherd, they will remain safe. So how do we remain safe, particularly when we know that Satan is always attacking? We stay close to the shepherd. Stay close to the shepherd. We, know, we don't have to worry about the roaring lion. Just stay close to the shepherd. He'll protect you. Third thing, third thing that we notice here is this. Suffering is the proving ground of our faith. Suffering is the proving ground of our faith. Suffering is actually, believe it or not, a, an important part of the Christian life. Suffering is part, uh, an important part of the Christian life. It, it shows us what we're made of. Think about the, the Navy SEALs. Navy SEALs, elite group of sailors. Navy SEALs, uh, every year the Navy has about 40,000 new recruits. Of the 40,000 new recruits, uh, 20,000 of them show interest in being a Naval SEAL, Navy SEAL. Of those who apply to the program, only 6% get in. Every year they start with about 1,000 new trainees who want to be a Navy SEAL. And because the training is so difficult and because they, there is a lot of suffering involved with that whole process, only 200 to 250 people graduate each year as a Navy, Navy SEAL. And one of the things that their suffering shows, what it meets out, all of the difficulties of becoming a Navy SEAL, it shows who's a genuine SEAL from who wants to be a genuine SEAL. The one who makes it, that's a, that's a true SEAL. The one who, who doesn't, they want to be a Navy SEAL. And there's no, there's no uh, it's, it's not a bad thing if somebody tries to be a Navy SEAL and they don't, they don't make it. It's a great ambition, of course. But, but the suffering becomes the, the proving ground of, of who truly is a Navy SEAL and who isn't. And I know it's not a perfect, it's not a perfect illustration. It's not a perfect metaphor. But... But what God does in our suffering is, is, is he, he shows us who we really are. If in our suffering we turn our backs on God and we walk away from him, well, it, it means that we were like the seed that fell among the rocks or we were like the seed that fell among the weeds. In fact, the only way that we can persevere in this life is through the saving power of Jesus Christ. 
He, he's the only one who keeps us. He's the only one who sustains us. And, and he uses this, this suffering as a gift to shape us and mold us. Number one, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. But number two, it confirms our faith as we go through trial after trial after trial. And we seek him in our trials and he meets us where we are and he carries us through each of them. So how do we survive when Satan attacks us? Or how do we survive when suffering sets in? How is it? How is it that we survive? Christ will carry us. Christ will carry us. That's how we survive. It's in him. It's, it's in that sweet fellowship. It's in that sweet relationship with him that we're, that we're, that we're lifted through these trials and travails that we face and these struggles and, and our hardships. And it is in that relationship with him that we are sustained. It's something that he does in us from the inside out. It's an amazing, it's a miraculous thing that God does. He, he transforms us. He gives us a new nature. He gives us new desires. He, he, he calls us to a place where we love him and, and we want him more than, than release from the trials that we're underneath. It's a miracle. God's saving work is a miracle. And I pray that everyone here has experienced that, has, has known it, has known the sweet fellowship of Christ, that, that when we truly experience it, there's no, there's no walking away. Because he is our true refuge. He is our true source of light and life and all that is good. And I hope that you've come to a place where you have trusted him as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father.